I think it's a joke that Chris is doing to me. Give the guest speaker the creepy passage. <laughs> Eat flesh, drink blood. Hey, Ryan, I'm going on vacation. Uh, good morning, Renaissance. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I hope that you're all doing well this morning. Uh, I've been here a couple times before. Uh, uh, like uh, the video said, Chris and I have been friends for a long, long time. And so I got to come out last fall and I kind of hung out and took in church and uh, talked with Chris uh, on one of his first weekends that he was here. And then I was here with my family last December and I've really enjoyed being here. I mean, you all are pretty friendly. And so I'm just hoping that continues and that you don't beat me up afterwards or that like I don't creep you out with some crazy passage uh, that Chris has given me. But um, very, very excited uh, to be here. And like Chris said, we'd, we've been friends for um, a long, long time. And in fact, we've had this weird thing happen to us over the years where our journeys in ministry have kind of tracked with each other. And Chris has always been kind of one step ahead of me. Um, and so through uh, our relationship, we've been able to share and learn and challenge and, and grow together. Uh, we're really close in age. I mean, he started out as a high school pastor, uh, get this, at a church called Central Christian Church. It was in Vegas. I started out as a junior high pastor at a church called Central Christian Church, but it would happen to be in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, he started out, I think, just like six months before I did, and uh, we got to know each other early on, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But then throughout the years, um, as our leadership developed and things changed, he became a youth pastor and uh, oversaw all youth ministries. And then not long after that, I became a youth pastor at our church and, and uh, overseeing both junior high and high school and college. And so I'd called Chris and we shared. And um, as our churches grew, they were about similar sizes. And uh, before long, uh, Chris became a, a family ministries pastor overseeing all of children's ministry and youth ministry. And sure enough, not like six months later, the same uh, development happened at our church and they went that direction. And so Chris and I shared some more and um, we have similar personalities. We love to run and bike and do things outdoors. And, and so we've just been really good, uh, good friends for a long, long time. And, um, our kids are of similar ages, although he had girls and, you know, I had boys. So, um, we try not to get them together too much as they get older, uh, but, uh, they get along well. So it's kind of, you know, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, the, the leadership decision he talked about was, um, is kind of ironic because we've become so close of friends. We could have worked together at one point, uh, very, very early on, um, when I told you I became a junior high pastor six months after he became a high school pastor, well, I could have been a junior high pastor a little earlier uh, because I had interviewed at his church uh, for a junior high pastor position right out of college, and he was on that interviewing committee. And, um, and I went up there, and I will admit, I kind of, I was young. I didn't know, like, I didn't get enough good coaching is what I uh, uh, attributed to. But I kind of overdressed for the situation. And so they thought, like, this guy surely can't be a junior high pastor. Look at how he dresses. Way too formal. And um, only time I've ever been accused of that moving forward in life. And, and uh, so they, he was on that interview committee, and he chose, he was the deciding vote on the island that decided to kick me off. Um, <laughs> And he chose not to hire me and they hired another guy. And the irony in it is, is like him and I became really good friends. And the guy that he chose to hire, he hated. <laughs> I don't know if he hated him, but he really didn't get along with him all that well. And, um, and then it was several years later where we were hanging out one time. He's like, Ryan, I got a, 
I got to tell you that something, you know, we've become friends and I, you know, challenging and it's great and all that. But he's like, I have to own the fact that like I was the deciding vote to like not bring you here on staff. I'm like, that's okay. I'll just remind you for the rest of your life. Uh, And, uh, you know, it was the worst decision you ever made, but okay, we can move on from that. So um, that's, that's how we know each other. The passage today uh, that, uh, that they referenced, um, the, the section that we're going to focus on, the say what, is in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says this, and I can't believe he says it, and it is kind of creepy. Um, he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And he's very literal about this as you read it, and, and I'm going to put it in context in a second, and I hope it gets better. So let's pray about this as we launch into it. God, this morning, uh, be with us as we learn from your scripture and from your word. And uh, thank you uh, for this church family. I'm, I'm honored to be here and teach and, and share your words. And uh, may you bless them because it's your word and it's alive and active. And uh, it cuts deep and it challenges. Help us to apply it as we grow. Help us to understand it because these are some strange words that, um, that you share. Uh, help us to put it into activity in our lives. And may we walk out of here uh, enriched, blessed, and growing today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 6, verse uh, 51. I'll put this in a broader context. Jesus is teaching uh, to his core disciples. He has a group of, uh, a larger group of, of people he also calls disciples or students at this time. Uh, there's some Jewish leaders in the crowd, and then there's just a larger crowd, and we'll talk about where they came from in a minute. So he has a pretty big audience, and he says this starting in verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews who were hostile to Jesus began to argue with one another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who consumes me will live because of me. It didn't get any easier. Like, I'm, I was kind of hoping as I read through this passage, like, and Chris shared with me uh, the phrase, I'm like, oh, certainly inside of context, like, it'll be an illustration. And then I read this section of scripture, which was the main scripture Chris wants me to teach on. I'm like, it seems creepy. Like, this is one of those things when you're not sure that you're a follower of Jesus or before you become a follower of Jesus, you hear about passages like this and you go, nah, those people are weird. Like, you know, I don't know, like they're talking about like cannibalism or something. You know, I showed up for church this Sunday at Renaissance and flesh and blood and I was out. Like I didn't even want to stay another 10 minutes to hear that guy. Um, it's, it's a hard, difficult passage. And it's passages like these that you can relate with the Jews and the Jewish leaders when they start, they don't understand they're there 
they've heard it, they're seeing it in context, they've been around in the follow-up stuff that comes before this, and then Jesus just like starts pontificating and he says crazy stuff like, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Can you imagine like some pastor getting up here on a Sunday morning and like, okay, this is how it's going to go, church. Really, if you want to follow God, you got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And as I read through this, I kind of dialed in on the last sentence because I understand this and and I can connect with this because Jesus says, I live because of the Father. And then he says, so the one who consumes me will live because of me. He talks about consumption and consuming him. I used to think, um, I think when I was in my 20s and going to Bible college, um, I was probably pious and idealistic and really wanting, you know, as I still do today, but, you know, a different sort of faith. I wanted to follow God with my full zeal. And there was this time in my spiritual life where I really wanted to believe that I wasn't like of this world. I wanted to believe that I was fully devoted to God so much so that I, I wasn't a consumer. I, I certainly wasn't caught up in consumerism. I all, oh no, I only consume Jesus. I, I'm a little older now. If you can't tell by these bright lights, my hair is graying. You know, I got some kids. I have junior high kids. You know, they after the years of doing junior high ministry, they certainly took a little bit of life out of me and gave me some realism. And um, and you know, I have a confession to make. I am a consumer. I, I am a full-on consumer. Like I identify with consumerism. Now, for all of us, I think we do. Like I'm not gonna, you know kind of pussyfoot around this. I think we're all consumers. I'm going to tell you, I am a consumer of experiences. Um, There's a lot of things I love to consume, but I love to uh, consume experiences. I love to travel. Um, I, I enjoy being in New Jersey. Like, uh, I was here a few times. My first experience with New Jersey was Edison. Uh, it, it, it kind of, well, you know, before you ever come to New Jersey, you've probably heard this before. People who've never been to New Jersey before just think New Jersey is what they see on the Sopranos, okay? I'm from the West Coast. All of us think Sopranos when we think of New Jersey. I'm sorry. That's just what we do. And as a kind of a joke, Chris left me a Sopranos cigar at his house when I got there. I'm like, Chris, this is, this is not New Jersey. Um, but the, then I went to Edison, and I was like, it's kind of industrial. You know, you fly into Newark, which isn't helping things, and and then you go to Edison, and I was there for an outreach convention for the ministry that I work with, Triple X Church, and I'll tell you about that later. But I'm like, well, this kind of looks and feels like, you know, the Sopranos, industrial and dirty, and I could see mobster in all of this. And, um, and then I was here last fall, and I came to Summit, and I'm like, oh, there are good parts of New Jersey. You know, this is nice. You know, the big trees and nice shops and great people, and people are kind of friendly. But um, I like New Jersey because I, I, I fit in, I think, here well, because people have distinct opinions in New Jersey. And, and I was uh, hanging out yesterday. I went uh, shopping for a little bit, and then I was at the mall, and this mom was talking with her son, and he said something to her in passing by the store, like, Mom, I'd really like those shoes. 
And she stopped and she was talking to him about shoes. She looked up at the store and she's like, no, I don't like that brand. And the thing about like New Jersey is you have a distinct opinion. It's well thought through. You can articulate it to others and people within three to five feet of them can overhear this opinion. And so she just goes on and it's well thought through and she's very articulate and the son is convinced. And now he doesn't like the brand, but he still wants the shoes, you know, or last night I ate dinner downstairs. And um, I also like New Jersey because there's passion in your sport teams. Um, By the way, is this a Jets crowd or a Giants crowd? I have to know. Giants? Giants? Jets? Jets? A few Jets? Tebow? Is he the uniting Messiah? I don't know. Um, I just, I needed to know um, what crowd is in. Sounds a little little heavy Giants, but if you're a Jets fan, you can sit over here. This is the Jets section. Okay. Uh, But this girl was just like, there's these two girls and these two, three guys, and they're all sitting at the bar last night and they were talking sports. And then one of the guys said something that was wrong or not factually accurate, or it was at least not the opinion that she held. And she just gave him hell. Like she just got up and started like getting in his face and correcting the coach's name and all this stuff. And I was like, that's why I like New Jersey. I fit in here. I like it. I consume experiences. Um, I consume, I love athletics and, um, and athletic challenges. Uh, You know, I, I, I've been a mountain biker for years and then, uh, some friends got me into triathlons and, I never wanted to be a roadie biker, but um, triathlons were kind of fun and challenging. And I just kind of kept going, got hooked on a smaller distances. And then, then I finally did a marathon and that was kind of, a, you know, an adrenaline high and experience. And so oh, I'm going to try an Ironman and I've done a couple of those. And I just, I love, I love those things. Um, I must also admit, um, I love to consume food and drink good food and drink. Like I can remember some of my best meals. I don't know why, because I have a horrible memory for lots of kinds of details and experiences, but you put a good food and drink down in front of me and we have a conversation. I might not remember that you were there or that we talked, but I definitely know what we ate. Um, And if you reference that, it's like, you know, I can still remember one of the best meals I've ever had was on the wharf in, in San Francisco and the ocean breeze and you know, they have all these seals and walruses outside on the docks and they're just taking over. And, you know, I can remember the Caesar salad I had and I can remember the clam chowder and the lobster. I can remember the beer. I mean, I can remember it all. Like, I love to consume uh, food and drink. I you know the outdoors, I love to be outdoors. I love it. Um, I just got back from two weeks in Colorado, uh, hiking and uh, mountain biking and doing all kinds of fun stuff there. And I love the aspen trees and the Rocky Mountains. I, I just, I, I'm a consumer. And one of the things I appreciate about Manhattan um, is when I go to Manhattan, I'm reminded I'm not alone. In my desire to be a consumer. I brought my family here uh, last winter. It was December 10th. It was, I don't know if you remember this Saturday, but it was a beautiful, sunny Saturday. And we came, we stayed with the Trethways. We took the train into the city. And uh, then we just took in as, I mean, we just jam-packed our day full. And I have three boys. They're 9, 10, and uh, 12. My wife, Jennifer, was with us. And uh, this is one picture. We hopped on the subway. And uh, 
And evidently there was some sort of Santa Claus pub crawl going on for a fundraiser for charity. Um, and there was this crazy green Santa. And then there was like, you can't see him far back, Frankenstein Santa. And that's my son in the middle. He just happened to have a red hoodie on and he's full of life. And he had his red shoes on. He's like, dad, I fit in finally, you know, and he just, and he's like, he gathered them. He gathered them all up for the photo. Like, you know, I'm like, all right, why not? You can't go pub crawling with them, son. But you know, um, it, you know, second, and this is my wife and my youngest son, Elias, um, the Rockefeller Center. And we thought, you know, hey, because we're stupid, um, we thought, oh, we'll go down to Rockefeller Center, day, Center. It's a Saturday. You know, surely we'll be able to get in line for ice skating. And, and you know, it's wonderful outside. And so did like 1.5 million other people crawled into Rockefeller. That is the closest we could get to the tree. Like we thought, oh, family photo in front of the tree. No way. Like, you know... Quick, protect our son. I'll try to clear a few people out. We'll snap a shot in front of this car, you know, like 500 yards away. I went into the Lego store that's down there. I wanted to sit in the corner and cry while my kids, like, I was hoping that they would, like, they were, like, literally crawling under people's legs to go to a display. I and mean, it was so packed uh, on 5th, and, and, you know, it was just, it was a blast. But Manhattan definitely reminds me that I'm not alone in my consumerism. Um, But each of us, if you are willing to acknowledge it, um, each of us are easily distracted by our desire to consume. In fact, it's this consumption desire, this appetite. It's an indicator of our desire to be alive, uh, to be filled, to enjoy. Like it is in our human nature to be consumers, And I think that's why at like the age of 38, I've just stopped apologizing for it. I've realized that like it's in my DNA to want to consume. And all of us are looking for something as we're consuming these things. Like we go about uh, consuming sex, consuming money, consuming relationships, consuming items, consuming power. We're looking for in those things, we're looking for life. And Jesus points that out at the end of that passage. He says, because of the father uh, lives in me. So the one who consumes me will live because of me. He understands this. In fact, he says um, in John six sixty three, a little bit further down the passage, Jesus says this, the spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. Jesus recognizes that inside of our human nature, we will consume and we will use our lives and we will spend our lives in search of life. And it's our desire. We know that there's something missing. We know that we have to have it. We, need, we know we need to fill ourselves up with it. And so we go looking for it. And each of us have our own flavors. I told you about a few of mine through sports and experiences and food and all this stuff. But if you stop for just a second, you'll, you'll be able to identify those same things in you. They might be different than mine, but Jesus is right on. And he identifies also that that life that we're searching for in our consumption can't come from anything other than God's given spirit. So the question becomes, how can we learn to rely fully on God? How can we learn to receive this life from God and God's spirit that he talks about in this crazy passage where he says, if you want to live, 
You've got to consume me. You've got to consume me fully. You've got to consume my flesh. You've got to consume my blood. If you back up in John, you'll find in John chapter 4, Jesus has another conversation. In this conversation, he's talking with the woman at the well. You've probably heard this story before. Jesus goes out and his disciples leave him at a well and they go into town and they're looking for food. Jesus stays at the well and this woman comes out from town and she's there to draw water. She's thirsty, but she's there in the middle of the day. It's an odd time. Why is she alone? Jesus is there. They get into this conversation and it all centers around thirst. It all centers around water. And, and as they're having this conversation about water, Jesus asks her for a drink. And he says this really interesting thing. He says, if you knew who you were speaking to, he says this to the lady, you would ask me for a water that after you drink it, you would never be thirsty again. You would ask me for this eternal water, this water that fills you up. That's prior to this conversation where Jesus is talking to his disciples and all these people around in John chapter 6. If you back up a little further in John chapter 6, you see that Jesus just came from the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus was in this crowd. He was teaching. They had come out to the countryside. There's tons of people all around. They stay so late. The sermon is so awesome. Evidently, they stay for hours. And now they're starving. And the disciples want to send them away. And Jesus says, no, let's feed them. Let's fill them up. Let's give them what they need. And so Jesus uh, does a miracle where he takes a few loaves of bread and a few fish from a boy and he multiplies it and he feeds the whole entire crowd. And the people recognize this, that you know, something incredible has been done here and our stomachs are full. Not only have they received from God the word, but they've also received from God this filling, this physical filling, this temporary, but it's filling. God has been trying to show um, mankind, how to have life through reliance on him from the very beginning. If you go back even further, do you remember uh, when God rescues his people out of Egypt? God uses Moses and he rescues them from the Pharaoh and he takes them up out of Egypt and they're marching on their way into the promised land. And God thinks like, I would think, and you would think if you read the story, like all these miracles, all these plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, all this stuff that's going on, that surely that those folks from Egypt would know how to rely fully on God, that they would know how to trust him and go to him for everything that they need. They can't. And so they wander in the desert for 40 years, it says. And what does God do to help them learn? He says, look, Moses, we got to break this all the way down. These people, their hearts are hard. They're kind of wicked. He calls them stupid, really slow. They're slow in understanding. They're dumb. We're going to have to go all the way back and show them day by day by day by day how to rely fully on me. So what does he do? You're familiar with the story. He breaks it down so that every day they have to wake up and in the morning he gives them manna. When you read the description of manna, don't read it when you're hungry. Like I was reading this passage the other day and it was morning and I had a cup of coffee, but like evidently I hadn't had enough to eat for breakfast and I'm reading the description of manna and it's really a pretty good description in the Bible. Like it talks about it being this thin, crusty, like wonderful, moist bread with a, with a taste of honey to it. And I was drinking my coffee and it's nice outside and reading this passage. I'm like, 
I want some manna. Like I'm going through Chris's you know, cupboards. Like, Chris, you got any manna in here? You know, uh, it's like, you know, I'm staying at his house. He's gone. So I'm eating his food. And, um, and then it says at night, he gives them quail and he gives them meat. And, but it's, it's, they can only collect enough every day. So that they have to rely upon him for the next day. Like if they tried to stay, save stuff up from like, oh, I'm going to go out one morning and collect like two or three days worth. You know, like, you know, ladies, we like to go shopping and get all like a week's worth of stuff. So I don't have, I hate going back to the grocery store day, store day after day. So I get their idea. Like they tried to collect it. They couldn't. It would spoil. They have to go day after day after day. And, and God literally says to Moses, we are going to teach them how to rely upon me. They have to come to him for the food. And he's, it's, it's, he uses food to show them that life comes from God and reliance upon him. In chapter 17 of Exodus, they're thirsty. They're in a desert. I'm from Phoenix. I get this idea, okay? There's no water. It's awful. I, I mean, you guys are complaining about a little bit of humidity. Have about 114 in the summertime, okay? And then, like, you'll, <laughs> like I, I try to leave Phoenix every chance I get in the summertime. There's no water. And so they're thirsty and they're crying out to God, God, you know, we, the man is nice. The quail's great, but can we have some water? So in the middle of the desert, God uses Moses and out from this huge rock, uh, God makes spring uh, uh, forth water for them to drink. And they learn to become reliant upon him for their thirst. This idea is already there. So when you get to John chapter six, it's on the back end of the woman at the well, the feeding of the 5,000, this history that God has had with the people trying to show them through this, this very visual and practical picture of food and water, how to rely upon him. Jesus uh, says, in fact, he's a little bit discouraged that they don't understand what they're doing. In John chapter 6, verse 26, he says to them, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, how, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. You're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, not because you know that I'm God, not because I'm filling you up with spiritual things, but because you ate the loaves of bread and you had all you wanted. And in another version, it says, you got your stomachs full and it was for free. And that's all you care about. The people came looking for him and they, they missed it. They missed the point entirely that Jesus was trying to give them something that would fill them life up and they're just chasing him around for a free meal. And so it's on the heels of that idea and of those lessons that we get to this passage and Jesus says, look, look, I've been trying to explain this to you. It's not about a free meal and it's not about these cute words. I am trying to show you that life True life, life eternal fullness comes from the full consumption of God. And so he takes them into this, what seems like a crazy picture where he says to them, you have to consume me fully. You have to be willing, in other passages he says, you have to be willing to lay down your life for me. You have to be willing to die for me. You have to be willing to walk away from your mom and dad for me. In this passage, he says, you have to be willing to consume me fully. And he takes it to that very literal aspect where you have to be willing to, to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to know that I am your everything. Well, this, this as crazy as it sounds, most of these people couldn't get it. 
And many of them start to walk away and they're discouraged in this passage. And so he turns to his disciples. He says in John chapter 6, verse 27, you don't want to go away too, do you? He's asking them, like, are you so discouraged? Are, are you so overwhelmed with what I'm saying that you have to be fully ready to consume God? You have to be, you have to be all in in order to have life. Are you going to go away too? And Peter uh, turns to him and he says, Jesus, where else do we have to go? It's kind of an interesting passage. Like, we've left everything for you, Jesus. Where else would we go? We know that you have the lives eternal. We know that you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. We're all in. Um, I want to share with you a picture. Uh, this is a mountain biking in, in, in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. You uh, get an opportunity to ride the chairlift all the way to the top, and there's some wonderful trails you can go down. I don't know why, but I thought I'd go up. There were some more trails that went up. Going up at 11,000 feet is really hard. Like, you lose your breath. And so I just I left my family behind, and I said, see you later. I'm going to go into the wilderness. And they said, okay, bye, crazy dad. And uh, he just went off riding. I wanted to see what else there was to see. And I, I stopped and took this picture because I was out of breath. Like, I was like, <sighs> I'm not an Iron Man, I guess. <sighs> you know, and it, was just, it was just so hard. But it was beautiful. And, and the thing about this moment is because God, God was able to grab a hold of me for a minute. I am sometimes so busy being a consumer, a consumer of stuff like this that um, I have to admit to you, I'm, I'm also guilty of getting distracted by being a consumer of God. Like my consumption can distract me from reliance upon God. That if I'm not careful in my humanity, I can go back about being who I am and, and look for life, fullness of life in other things. And it's a really slippery slope for me like, I find myself there, and I don't even know that I'm there at times. Like, oh, I'm looking for something more in mountain biking, or I'm looking for something more in travel, or I'm so- looking for something more. Like, I'm looking for that life. And when God grabs a hold of me, he's able to help me recognize that, Ryan, 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 what you're looking for, you're not actually going to find in all those things. And it was in a, um, it's in moments like this where God is able to grab a hold of me and say, what you're looking for, Ryan, is to be found in me. In the consumption of me, fully invested in me. I, I give life through the Spirit to you. Life eternal, life right now, fullness of life. So my challenge, my question is, what will it look like for you to let God grab your attention? What will it look like for you for, to let God grab your attention? How does he get a hold of you and say, consume me. Drink of my blood, eat of my flesh, take me in fully. Be fully devoted to me. Understand that life comes from me. Not from all of these things uh, that you're chasing after. Will you slow down long enough for God to speak to you? For some of you, it might be in the outdoors. For others of you, you know, it could happen 
in the craziest places. Like I have a friend who he travels a lot and it always seems like God grabs a hold of him on an airplane. I, I think it's because on the airplane, you're digitally disconnected. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You go through withdrawals when they make you turn off your cell phone. You know, it's like, oh, Facebook, text messages, phone calls, ah, you know. And then you're so excited when you get on a plane with Wi-Fi. You're like, oh, yes, there is real life up here. The other day, uh, an airline um, attendant made him turn off his cell phone completely, and he's arguing with her because it has you know, the airplane mode. And she's like, no, no cell phone whatsoever. And he was irate. And then God grabbed his attention you know, in those moments. He had to slow down. He had to think. He had to process. He had to disconnect. I don't know what it looks like for you or where it's going to be. It could be as simple as repurposing your passions, um, taking uh, your passions and your skills and directing them towards his purposes, maybe helping to plant a new church, or I heard you guys are planning a new campus, um, serving others in need, you know, demonstrations of kindness, friendship with others who are lost, compassion, engagement in relationships. Maybe God just wants to grab a hold of you and use you in a new direction. Um, maybe it'll be a sacrifice um, of some of your personal interests for the sake of his interests. But God is trying to help you understand that life, full life, comes in the consumption of him. And he's trying to help me remember that all of the time. Uh, you know, after I left uh, being in local church ministry, that's the only decision I made in front of Chris. I mean, the, the irony with Chris is, you know, like he's always one-upping me. Like my birthday's July 11th, his is July 10th. Um, <laughs> He's just he's always doing it to me. But um, I, did, I did leave uh, and try something new, stepped outside the church. Uh, that was the only decision I think I've ever made before, Chris. And so um, I got to be with him when he was journeying and coming here. And it was a great time for us to talk and challenge each other. And, and I'm so excited about what he's doing now. And I've gone on and... and what I do doesn't parallel what he does at all anymore. I work with an organization called triplexchurch.com, uh, and we seek to uh, help people who um, are struggling with pornography and sexual addictions. We got started out in youth ministry because kids were really struggling with this in the 90s with modems and computers in their bedrooms, and nobody knew what was going on. And it was just you know overwhelming teenagers and lots of other people come to find out. And so we started teaching on it and sharing that with the church. But by nature, our organization is evangelistic, and, uh, and we were doing youth outreach stuff. And so when we got into this other vein of things, we're like, how do we become evangelistic? And we found out that like, there's these adult conventions, and uh, you know, adults gather together to share pornography, to experience pornography, to meet people who make pornography. And they're crazy, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people will come together for these conventions. They're like business conventions of a crazier kind. And, um, and we thought like, well, you know, we're evangelistic by nature. We love to share Jesus with other people. Let's go. What could be wrong with that? So we started a website. We thought if we put some X's in the name, they'll let us in. So we put triple X church with church. We put triple X with church and we just kind of shoved them together. And in our early days, our, our tagline was the number one Christian porn site. Um, 
We printed a banner, we paid the fee on a credit card, and we went to the convention with some Bibles that a women's ministry gave us and a children's costume that was like a cheery bunny instead of the wrong kind of bunny. And we just went. You know, we thought we'd get kicked out, and they liked us. Um, We were actually just having conversations and sharing Jesus with people who wanted to know why we were there and what the bunny was all about, and can we take our picture with them, and what are these pink, like, frilly Bibles. And now today, you know, our tagline is Jesus loves porn stars. I have a crazy background, a little bit off the beaten path. And we have a Bible that says the same thing, but it's uh, the book of John and some testimonies. And we go all the time. Uh, I oversee all of our outreach items. You know, we go to about 15 of those a year internationally. We have 35 ministries across the United States where we um, work with local churches and women who are doing outreach into strip clubs. We have uh, ministries into brothels. We go into some pretty dark places. And one of the questions I get asked every time when people learn about what we do is like, how does that work? Like, you know, they, some of them are embarrassed. Like, how's that work? You know, what's, what's it like? You know, and others are just like curious, like, like, how do you not get kicked out? And why do they like you? And, and do you really share Jesus there? And, and I, and I'm like, yes. And it's easy. It's easy. And they're like, no, it's not. I'm like, no, seriously. And I'm telling the, the truth because pastors normally lie. So I tell you the truth now. Um, just kidding. Uh, it's, it's easy. And they ask, why is it so easy? And, and one analogy I use for it is because when you're in a really dark place, the Bible says when you turn on a light, it's really easy to see. The, you know, the Bible says, you know, the city on the hill can't be hidden. You know, don't put your light under the bowl, the whole thing. Well, it's true. But the more I've thought about it, while I do believe that that is true, is, is that when you meet people who've spent their entire essence consuming life, through one thing, they do come to the end of the road and figure out that there's no life to be found in it. So when you meet thousands of people that literally they spend $50 a ticket and they're on the internet all the time and like they know the, you know, everything of the who's who and the what's what and this whole industry and they're there all the time and their whole lives have been about the consumption and finding life through sex. They come to the end of the road and they realize that there's no life in that. And the people that work in the industry, they're, they're, they're looking for hope. And so when you share Jesus with them, it's really radical and different and interesting. And God's grace is really kind of profound and amazing. And it gives life and they see that it gives life. And they see that these people that are with us have life. And Jesus is trying to communicate that same thing to us. And hopefully we don't have to go to that far end of despair. And whatever you know, our proclivities may be for consumption. That Jesus is trying to warn us and let us know ahead of time. Like, look, you don't have to go down all of these different paths looking for life and cons- through consumption of these different things. Life is found in the consumption of me. That's God's challenge and, and knowledge and hope and truth to us. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand in this crazy passage. Let's pray together. God, thank you um, for your words. Thank you for um, our time to study them and pray that they would sink deep um, on our hearts, on our souls, on our minds. God, that you would uh, stir um, your words in us this week. 
and help us to recognize where we're so busy chasing after life, looking to be filled up, when we could be getting that from you. Help us to slow down in our different ways, to recognize it in our different ways, and to repurpose our lives and direct them towards you fully. And to take you in and to rely upon you. Thanks for this great church. Uh, Pray for them. Pray for Chris's leadership. And just so blessed to be here. This is in your son's name we pray. Amen.